Welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Elena Lape. We have a very special mix for your end-of-year listening pleasure today, featuring interviews with novelists Liz Nugent and Cressida Connolly, and non-fiction authors Rosemary Davidson and Arzotassian. Lucy Scholes will discuss the new graphic novel by Posey Simmons, and I will also talk about my pick for December and the winter months ahead, Snow by Giles Whittle. But first, here's the much-loved, award-winning Irish author Colm Toybean reading from his beautiful new collection of essays entitled Mad, Bad, Dangerous to Know, The Fathers of Wild, Yates, and Joyce, in which he explores how these three great Irish writers' work was influenced by their relationships with their fathers. Enjoy. An Eminent Victorian Sir William Wilde. The prisoner, an Irish poet and playwright, would later die in his early forties, his reputation blighted by scandal and by allegations of egotism. In a book he would describe Reading Jail, where he was incarcerated, as a handsome building erected in red brick after the manner of an old castle with battlements and towers. What surprised him was the abundance of flowers growing in the exercise yard. It was an amazing sight. There were not merely flowers, a sight astonishing enough in itself. There was a prodigality of flowers. Then some of us remember the calls. One of the graves unlocked the secret. It was marked with the letters CTW and the date 1896, to whom Oscar Wilde's Ballad of Reading Jail had been inscribed, and in celebration of whose passing, the poem had been penned. In his book he quoted from Wilde's poem, But neither milk-white rose nor red may bloom in prison air. The shard, the pebble, and the flint are what they give us there. For flowers have been known to heal a common man's despair. So never will wine-red rose or white petal by petal fall on that stretch of mud and sand lies by the hideous prison wall to tell the men who tramped the yard God's son died for all. So Wilde had sung, the prisoner wrote, not in protest but in bitter acceptance. But for us who came after him with the memory of his song in our minds, the miracle had been wrought, for the great yard was a lake of leaf and bloom. The prisoner who came after Wilde and quoted from his poem was Darrell Figgis, one of a group that had been involved in the 1916 rebellion in Ireland. Many of them had been held first in other British prisons, were now transferred to Reading, where together in the small women's section of the prison, they were allowed to associate freely. They had been selected by the British authorities because they were believed, often wrongly, to be the leaders or the main troublemakers among the Irish nationalists. They included Arthur Griffith, the founder of Sinn Féin, and Sean T. O'Kelly, later President of Ireland. Despite their reputation, they were, while prisoners, quiet and peaceful, easier to manage than the Irish political prisoners who would be incarcerated in Reading two years later. My name is Liz Nugent, and I am going to read a short section from my novel Skin Deep, published by Penguin. 
In ancient times, McDermott the Weaver was famous throughout the length and breadth of the country for the fine garments he could produce from even the roughest wool. But McDermott had a scold for a wife. She was possessed of the longest red hair that swung down to her ankles, and it was her pride and joy. She would sit outside her cottage on a stool, combing it through with hard fish bones, to be admired by the passing islanders. But she was lazy, it was said, and if her children ran wild and hungry like stray dogs and brought trouble to the harbour where they'd be hopping boats and pegging stones at fishermen, she would blame her husband and roar at him in the street, bringing shame upon the man. MacDermott could not help but love her despite all her nagging, but the neighbours got fed up of it, and one day they held her down and hacked her hair off with knives. Then they ordered MacDermott to weave a sheet from her hair that would sit on the harbour wall as a warning to all the wives. Daddy always said that the red fronds that covered the wall were the woven hair of MacDermott's wife, but I was old enough to know that it was seaweed. MacDermott and his wife and children rarely ventured outside their cottage after that day, except to collect necessary items for their household. They spoke little and kept their heads down when at the market. The wife's hair grew back faster than anyone had imagined possible. When one year had passed, her flame-coloured mane reached her knees and she began to look up again, to hold her head straight and look the world in the eye. But the islanders did not like her arrogance and it was said that the nagging had begun once more, that children passing could hear it through the thick walls of the cottage. One day, MacDermott's wife was caught in the act of badgering her husband, complaining that he hadn't built the fire hot enough for her to bake bread. This time, her neighbours were merciless. They dragged her down to the harbour wall and hacked her hair off again. But this time, they forced her to eat it until she choked to death. Daddy used to tell me this story while I was curled up in his lap but he'd be staring at Mummy while he told it. Daddy said if a man couldn't keep his woman in order, his neighbours would have to do it for him. Liz Nugent, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to uh, join you across the Irish Sea. Exactly. It's the first time we are actually recording a podcast long distance, not, you know, sitting face to face in our studio, but over a phone connection. I think it's uh, very useful that my husband is a sound engineer and therefore we're (laughs) able to do this without me having to come all the way to London. (laughs) But you know, it's actually very fitting that we're recording this between London and Dublin because actually your book moves back and forth between Ireland and London and other places as well. Yes. So let's introduce the title of your book, which is Skin Deep... And it's a thriller. First of all, my first question is, I read somewhere that the first kind of original impetus for writing this book came from a song. That's right. It was a a song called Lady of a Certain Age by the Divine Comedy, Neil Hannon. 
She's down on her luck and she is um, sort of cadging drinks off strange men in bars on the Côte d'Azur. And she's sort of middle aged. And, you know, in the song, she was very much born with a silver spoon in her mouth. And now she is reduced in very reduced circumstances. So I just thought it was a really interesting start for a song. But then when I went to write that character into a book, I found that it would be much more interesting if she had actually climbed the social ladder to the high point and then fallen off it rather than start from the high point and just drift downwards. So I have her rise and then fall. Well, when you say rise, you are really talking about uh, (laughs) an almost mythical rise from where she comes from. Like a phoenix from the ashes, (laughs) literally. (laughs) Exactly. She comes from a fictional island. Can you describe this island? Well, the island is very much like the protagonist, Delia herself. Mm. Delia is very remote. Um, She's very beautiful, but she's very dangerous. And so is the island. The island is notionally off the west coast of County Mayo. It's a long way offshore. It isn't near any other islands. It has a reputation for its its madness and inbreeding. And uh, one side of the island is barren and rough and the other side of the island is very lush and fertile. And I reflected that in Delia's face as the story progresses. Throughout the book, you treat us to tales that she grew up with, Uh, tales that he, that the father told her, not storybook um, you know, fairy tales, but tales really about the island. Um, well, they're, they're all very macabre, I suppose. And I think they, I, I, I made them up. I mean, they're my own mythology. I just, I, I made them mm-hmm. up. But they're, they would have been the kind of, you know, like the Hansel and Gretel stories or the Brothers Grimm stories, mm-hmm. that those kind of stories that are told as moralistic tales, and they usually end up in women being punished for Mm -hmm. various things. So and each time I tell one of those stories in the book, it foreshadows something that's about to happen. So it's almost like it works almost as a Greek chorus in the book. So you get a kind of a sense of doom or a sense of, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, what's coming next? That's the way I've tried to use them. Now, your novel begins like a Columbo story with a dead body. Yes. Um, So Delia, although at this point she calls herself Cordelia, which we'll (laughs) talk about in a moment. But so Delia um, is in her flat in the south of France uh, on the Côte d'Azur. And there is a dead body of a man. And then one kind of expects to hear the continuation of that murder as a detective story. But mm-hmm. instead, you go back to her childhood and yes. you tell her, you tell us, you tell the reader the story of this woman's life from the very, very beginning. And in this, you know, I I was just in love with your storytelling and with how you managed to keep us fascinated by a character who is extremely dangerous, as you said, 
and very, very difficult to empathize with. Who is she really? How do you see her? She's really like an alley cat. She's a survivor. She's somebody who acts upon her instincts. She doesn't plan ahead. She is only ever looking at the short term solutions to her problems. She's not highly intelligent either. You know, she just she just coasts along looking for the next person who will provide her with her immediate needs. The novel is called Skin Deep. And of course, you know, we think about immediately about beauty being skin deep. In her case, her beauty is so unique and overwhelmingly, uh, you know, gorgeous that everyone sees her as an angel until they see her as the opposite of an angel. What is it that she actually does to people? I think she's like... um a flame, you know, of a flame mm. that attracts moths into its into its center and then destroys them. Like she's she's so attractive, and she has she has her entire life because of this strange relationship with her father. She puts her own self worth on her appearance. She 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 thinks that her appearance is the most important thing. Uh, she's mistaken about that, as we find out towards the very end of the novel. But uh, she, um, she, her, her self-worth is wrapped up in what she looks like. And what that means is that people will come to her. And I have found this in life to be true, that mm-hmm. uh, really good looking people, you know, they're more likely, even on juries, juries are more likely to find a good looking person innocent. Good looking people are more likely to succeed in job interviews. It's just a fact. I just decided to really have a go at that and see, you know, how far can somebody coast on their good looks? And she goes quite far. People find her magnetic. And one of the most problematic sides of Delia is her inability to love her own child. And this lack of love and her questioning what love is in general, she simply doesn't understand love. And yet, and yet, what's really striking is that the only love Delia has really known was the love she felt for her father. Now, what kind of love was that? Well, I think it was it was an all-consuming love. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a romantic love. It wasn't a no. sexual love. No, there was no question of incest between her and her father, but her father put her on a pedestal to the exclusion of her siblings and his wife. I mean, he really treated her like the queen. Because and that's who he told her she was. He told her from the day she was born that she was going to be the queen of the island. And this is what she has taken on. And I think the the subject of not loving her child is such a taboo because I know women who do not love their children. And I Mm -hmm. think because I don't have children that sometimes they can talk to me about it. But it's not something they will ever discuss with other people. With certainly not with other mothers and very few people they can say it to. And I think it's a kind of a, a tragedy that society in some way um, imposes motherhood. It's expected of women to have children and not all women are really 
geared up for it. And of course, when they have their babies, generally, of course, they fall in love with their babies and, you know, everything's fine and the bond is there. But I just thought, well, what if the bond isn't there? What if the bond doesn't form? And Mm -hmm. I think what's been very interesting in the reaction to this book is that it's the one thing that people cannot forgive of Cordelia. They are happy to go along with this story. They are happy to go along with this character. But they find the fact that she doesn't bond with her son absolutely abhorrent. But Mm -hmm. what I find very interesting about that is the fact that if it was a male character who turned his back on his child, he could still very easily be the hero of the story. It's just not forgivable for a woman to do the same thing. Throughout the book, the most powerful theme, I think, of of all is a really strong, passionate longing to go back home. In her case, that home is the island, and she loves the sea. Wherever she goes, she needs to see the sea and have a view of the sea and walk in the sea and just be just to just know that she is not far from the sea or as close to it as possible. The pull to go home and the pull of her island throughout her entire life is so powerful and deep. How do these themes, and particularly this this last one, this longing for home, to return home, how does this connect with your own life? Well, I think it's not just my life. It's a general Irish story. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been, you know, waves of immigration uh, since uh, since famine times. But I was I was a young immigrant in London at the age of 18, the same as Delia. Um, uh, In the recent recession, 2005, 2006, another 40, 50,000 Irish people uh, went to London and now with more access, of course, to further afield to Australia and Canada and New Zealand and South Africa and anywhere English is spoken uh, and and other uh, international destinations as well. But um, for 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 everybody in Ireland, everybody knows somebody who has emigrated. Everybody knows somebody who is living in a community in which they don't feel entirely at home mm-hmm. and wh- as settled as they might think they are. I think the pull of home is very, very strong and particularly maybe in Ireland, which hasn't had a huge immigration uh, population until the last 20 years, I suppose. But so the, there was always the thing of going away. So it was never quite a melting pot the way that England is or the way there wasn't people coming in their droves to Ireland until 20 years ago. So it was always the feeling of loss and um, people emigrating was was a, a, a case of great sadness and, and great sorrow within families. And, you know, you always hear about somebody's uncle who ended up in Kilburn or Cricklewood and, you know, is so out his days in the pubs singing old Irish songs. And there's something just dreadfully sad about that. Mm. (laughs) Breaks my heart. So, yeah, I only did two years in London and uh, I just got dreadfully homesick and I had to come home. The other theme that I'd love to talk to you about is this, the topic of disfigurement and damaged looks. 
because this is clearly also connected with your title, Skin Deep. But in this book, you don't just lose beauty by um, aging or letting yourself go. You lose it in a violent way. There is a character in this book called Freddy, a wealthy older man who is fascinated and drawn to disfigured people. And he, when he meets Delia, he is inspired by her, by her damaged looks, to paint. I think there is a place in the world for everybody, no matter what they look like, no matter how they appear. Mm-hmm. Um, there is somebody to admire or and in Freddie's case, he doesn't love Delia. He's never fallen in love with her. But there is something about her that attracts him. And partly it's the fact that although she has had this savage accident that has ruined her looks, she hasn't lost the confidence. Because once you are a child who is beautiful and who is told you are beautiful every day, it's very hard. That confidence doesn't disappear overnight. It takes Mm -hmm. a long, long time. And so when he meets her, she still has an an aura of superiority about her. And I think that's that's what he sees. He sees himself in her in that way. He knows he is of a certain class. He is of a certain education. And yet here is this person with this severe facial damage who is behaving in in almost a similar attitude to him. He um, he finds that damage incredibly attractive and he tries to find the beauty within that damage. And that is why he spends the rest of his life, almost from the moment he meets her, trying to capture that in paintings. There's so much I could ask you, but this interview has to end here, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Liz Nugent, thank you so much for this conversation for Love Reading. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I'm really pleased that you love the book so much. (laughs) Thank you. Lucy Scholes, welcome to the December Book Post. Today, we'll be talking about just one book. And my question is, first of all, what is the book? And is it a Christmas book? Well, the book is Posey Simmons's new graphic novel, uh, which is called Cassandra Dark. And I think that it is a Christmas novel. Um, We can probably have a bit more of a discussion about that. But um, there are parallels between Sims's work and A Christmas Carol in quite an interesting fashion, I think. So you could definitely enjoy this at different times of the year, but I suspect that it will make for a very good Christmas present if you're looking for something to buy um, a loved one in your life, let's say. Mm, loved one or maybe <laughs> hated one. This book is so full of mischief yes, and uh, satire and humor, dark humor, but also heavy, heavy, heavy duty reality about London life True. today. So on the cover, this is a graphic novel, of course, Posey Simmons. On the cover, we have Cassandra Dark, the, the main character, who is, I suppose, an older lady. She's tough. She looks very tough. She's got her handbag almost like a weapon. She's holding a gun and gloves. And behind her is a young lady 
What what are we looking at? Well, we're looking at one of the scenes from later in the book. But I think what's interesting about this is, um, as you've mentioned, Cassandra is an older woman. She's also a rather overweight woman as well. She's the type of woman, I think, that doesn't normally get to have their story told. So the fact that she's leading this um, this this story is interesting in it, you know, in and as it stands. Um, she's also a fairly unlikable character, as I think we might have um, insinuated earlier. She doesn't have much kind of feeling of goodwill towards men, despite the festive season. She's <laughs> very uncharitable. She's very selfish. She's very self-obsessed. She um, is a very wealthy woman. She's an, uh, She has an art gallery in Chelsea, um, and she's made an awful lot of money. And the handbag that she's wearing, I think it's a Kelly bag, isn't it? So it's mm. incredibly wealthy. She's wearing these kind of rather large... Um, marigold yellow rubber gloves on her hand with the gun in um, in one of those. And so what we're seeing is a kind of an action scene from later in the book. But it certainly gives a kind of odd impression, I think, for people picking this up. Um, they're going to want to read more, I would imagine. Absolutely. Well, uh, the book begins, I'm going to open it up now. Um, and it begins with a newspaper clipping. Mm. Woman's body found in local woods was quotes, homicide victim. Yeah. How does that relate? And this is in 2017, we are told. How does that relate to the rest of the book? Well, I don't want to give it away, Eleanor. Come on. No, <laughs> I'm not going to give it away. But like, why, no, but yeah, why does right. this book begin with a newspaper clipping? Well, we start with this newspaper clipping about um, a, a woman's body has been found. And what then you get is a story which, I mean, I will admit, this is maybe not the most... People might expect graphic novels to be fairly kind of straightforward, easy reading. And what Simmons has done mm -hmm. here is done. She's actually put together quite a complicated novel. It goes yeah. back and forth, time periods mm -hmm. kind of split. And you're following the story of not only Cassandra, but also this young woman who is the daughter of Cassandra's ex-husband's second, like, second mm -hmm. wife, isn't mm -hmm. it? Um, who's, who's also her stepsister. Who's also her. Yes, that's so complicated. So there's a lot of kind of intricate family relations going on there. So the younger woman comes to live in Cassandra's basement at a certain point um, and Cassandra sort of uses her as a slave labour around the home and the office, let's say. And the way that their lives become entangled, it's then via some of the connections that the younger woman has with a boyfriend that this link to this initial um, missing person um, advert at the beginning. But I suppose what's interesting about it in that way of if we're looking at kind of, you know, the fact that it takes um, sort of an inspiration in a way from something like A Christmas Carol, not in any sense of retelling the same story, but there are certain elements here. I mean, Cassandra is a Scrooge-like character. Yeah. And also in that kind of great Dickensian fashion, I think what Simmons has done here is put together a novel which, like I think you talked about at the very beginning, it's a novel which goes, uh, which sort of looks at all manner of mm -hmm. society. So we're seeing the wealthy, we're seeing the mm -hmm. kind of underdogs, we're seeing people from different ages. Um, and I think that that's what's so wonderful about it, that if you follow it through, what you get is a very kind of fascinating interlinked story that the fate of one person is actually connected. You know, the fate of this kind of body they found in the middle of the countryside does actually link up with Cassandra's life, even though you would assume they would be a million miles apart. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what Dickens was doing, you know, in the 19th mm -hmm. century and making us realise that there were all these connections between society. There's something so wonderful about the drawings in particular. And yeah. this is what people talk about so much, that they are... You know, you look at Simmons' drawings and it is like 
the people on the street. You know, she picks up on these little things that make her characters kind of, you know, breathe life into them. And not just her central characters, but the people. There's lots of wonderful pictures here of people shopping, going up to the Christmas holidays. And just each individual person on the page is like someone you would encounter on the street. And there's something so wonderful about that sort of truthfulness to the work. Um, and mm-hmm. I think I've read somewhere that, you know, Simmons said that she spent quite a lot of time hanging out in, you know, Chelsea and kind of Mayfair and Belgravia and these places in order to be able to watch and kind of see the types of people who were walking around those streets and those sort of art galleries. And I think that really pays off here. You can it, It's completely realistic. It's so realistic. It's so London. And I also love how it captures the thin line between the main character being a wealthy, successful lady mm. and at one point becoming the exact opposite of that yes in a certain environment and when she when something happens to her so it, it shows that we can be both mm. and no one is secure but also like from the very 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 beginning of the book it shows that incredible loneliness that most people many people do feel at mm. this time that's and, true, actually. And sadness and depression and being on the outside of it. Now, she, this this main character, Cassandra, deals with it by saying, honestly, that she thinks it's all nonsense and no one should do it. Yeah. Although she kind of privately does have her own sort of preferences, how she her, her celebrates it on her own. Well, she doesn't celebrate, but what she eats and what she drinks. But as she kind of moves through these streets that you just described and she watches people, she is so alone. Mm. She is not, she doesn't belong with anyone. She is alone. And when her own family or sort of family do come close to her or invite her, she still stays away, basically. She keeps a wall between herself and them. And I think that really captures the way city life is not only at Christmas, but particularly particularly during these festive times. Yeah, it sort of highlights it, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think also, but there's something so, one. I mean, well, for me at least, I think there's something mm. very interesting of that that Simmons doesn't, um, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but this mm. is not... It's hard to talk about this. It is kind of hard to talk about it. Giving something away, but, but I you think, need to give something away. But I think it's fair to say that by the end, that this is not a classic story no. of Cassandra seeing the light suddenly and no. realising that she needs family and people around her. It's not no. going to give you that kind of happy ending. No. Um, and I really like that again, because I think it goes, I think it's quite a brave thing to do. And I mm-hmm. think that there's a lot of bucking the trend and sort of, you know, going against the status quo here that Simmons is doing, particularly with this kind of female male protagonist, you know, who is unlikable, who is lonely. Um, I mean, lonely is a tricky question. I mean, she enjoys her solitude, enjoys let's it. say. She does mm. enjoy her solitude. She doesn't that want actually, to be around That actually is, well, again, I, you know, I want to talk about a particular scene, but I can't really talk about it because then I would be giving something <laughs> away. But I do want to say that she actually has moments of regret when she suddenly realizes, oh, I could have had more of a love life. I oh, we probably could talk about. Well, are we you talk talking about, about the dinner party scene? Yes, yes. I mean that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So there is a point where Cassandra has a couple of friends over to dinner, and her lodger slash sort of niece. I can't, it's so complicated. This family yeah. relationship <laughs> is downstairs in the basement, um, having very loud sex with her partner, and she says that, and Cassandra. What does she say? She says that she wished someone had sort of called out her name in the moment of passion, <laughs> even though her name is quite long and <laughs> quite a mouthful, let's say. But it, it, you get these, then you're right, there's a kind of these tiny moments of insight into um, a life that, to all intents purposes, has been very privileged and very kind of full in certain ways, um, and then obviously slightly empty in others. Mm. Uh, but, I do, but I don't know. I mean, I don't think one is supposed to come away feeling particularly 
sorry for Cassandra? I don't know. Did you? I Of course I did. But really? I'm, yeah, but I, I'm a sucker for, you know, difficult characters who... Um, do undergo some sort of change at the end, and I very I love oh. characters who are not necessarily likable, as you said, but so honest. She is so honest. There's no nonsense. But you actually felt. I mean, I I, I enjoyed her as a character. I didn't feel. She belongs I didn't pity to another world. She belongs. She's like from another era. She's from. She's like from like from the pre-war era of really tough <laughs> women that age who just did. And said what was on their minds. Yeah, um, I, I think if people have read, I mean, Simmons is known for her. She's always been known for kind of satirical work. Mm. Um, I don't think she's been known for anything quite as dark as this before. Yes. I mean, she has always pushed boundaries in a sort of, but in maybe a slightly more palatable way and in, in something that's slightly more jokey, um, light-hearted manner. This strikes me as being much darker than her previous works. Um, and I think that those people who maybe read, you know, Tamara Drew or mm-hmm. um, Gemma Bovary, which are both wonderful, wonderful books. I mean, mm. fascinating in terms of the adaptation issue that she's done with each of them taking these 19th century novels and turning, bringing them into the mm. present day and turning them into graphic novels. I mean, you know, she has such a way with adaptation and, you know, mm-hmm. the way that she gets inspired by certain texts and makes mm. them into her own I think is fascinating and we could talk for hours about just that but each of those neither of them even though they deal with you know contemporary issues nothing goes quite as far as this this does seem to be quite a step um, a different kind of step for yeah. her let's say I actually think that Cassandra Dark is a perfect Christmas book graphic novel for our very dark times. I think you're right. It, I think you, you're you're right in that sense. I mean, I, because it's got the Christmas element in it, people will enjoy mm. reading it, but it's certainly not going to, it's not a sort of, it's not necessarily a feel-good, mm. you know, read for Christmas time. But I think when I first got a copy, I put a picture up on Instagram of it, and it was one of my most liked sort of images from people going, I want this for Christmas, exactly. I want this for Christmas. Exactly. So I think, you know, I think they'll all be pleasantly surprised let's say but well if you didn't already have one i would have bought you one for christmas but anyway same here so (laughs) but i'd be buying it for plenty of other people so (laughs) exactly me too you know my christmas recommendation for everyone it is definitely let's leave it at that lucy skulls thank you very much for our last book post for 2018 my pleasure eleanor thank you for having me I'm Arzu Tarsin, and with Rosemary Davidson, we're the authors of Craftfulness, published by Quercus in October. Arzu, Rosemary, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Hello. We normally, on this podcast, have two sort of different segments. One is where I chat to authors about their books, and a completely different separate one called Where Books Come From is where I speak to people who work in publishing, publishers, editors, agents, about their life in publishing and how they came into it uh, on a personal level. Well, in this case, we are actually combining both because you are both former editors and publishers and authors of a book. So can we begin by chatting a little bit about your publishing life? Mm. Arzu, what is your story? Oh, so I got into publishing in my 20s and my first job was at Virago Press, which was uh, very exciting at the time, if you can imagine, you know, in your very early 20s and you, your first job is in this wonderfully dynamic, vibrant environment. I've started off uh, working in various departments until I decided, and it wasn't until 
I got to Bloomsbury where I ran the paperback department that I really decided I wanted to commission books and mm. there you know, I published some some terrific books. You published some very, very big and famous <laughs> books, both at Bloomsbury and later on as yes, well at yes. um, Orion. Yeah. The biggest book I published was called The Kite Runner mm. uh, by Khaled Hosseini. And I remember that manuscript coming in and reading it. And I was prepared to put my own money in to buy this book. That is how passionately I felt about it. And then it was published. And of course, it became the huge sensation it was. And at the time, I remember thinking, wow, I'm really, really good at commissioning. Like my, you know, my first major acquisition and, and look what's happened. Um, so that that was a, a terrific landmark for me. And it is, it's a very, it was a wonderful entree, if you like, into, into commissioning. And I got sent some very exciting books after that. How, how Actually, how did The Kite Runner go from being just a book that you acquired to being this mega success? Yeah. Was there a moment when something changed for that book? It, it, it wasn't with the hardback, you know. The copies, we, we did a sort of limited print run, didn't we, Rose, of, of the hardback. The hardback actually didn't make that much of an impression in this country. I actually country. have that yeah. hardback still, and it has not a single quote on it. Yeah, well... I actually remember when Azu acquired it because at the time I was working as a commissioning editor also at Bloomsbury but in the, the hardback department and I remember sort of going to Azu's desk and seeing a sort of pile of postcards in front of you Azu yeah. and she you know you had meticulously written uh, these handwritten notes and they were to Isabella Allende, uh, Margaret Atwood uh, and just watching the process of Azu mm -hmm. putting her heart and soul into these little personal notes that were going out with every single proof copy. So, know. you know, that, that that's part of it. That's part oh, of how the book exactly. became the huge success that it was, was the sort of belief and the passion that was going into every note, every copy that went to a reviewer. And the thought that went into selecting who to yes, send who it to, yes, send yes. what to say to that person. Yeah. Well, and that is the invisible part that an editor an acquiring editor plays. There's a funny story about that, Rose, now you say it. So, so I did do hundreds of these very personal notes to people. And of course, not of course, but it's usual for us to receive maybe 0.1% feedback from all those cards we send out. Um, but I remember being in the office one day, having sent out these cards and thinking, okay, you know, I need more people to read this book. And then suddenly of the fax machine and I went over and this fax came through from Isabel Allende. Look, dear Azu, thank you so much for sending me the book. I, I also received a copy from the American publishers, and this is what I have to say. And this incredible review, and we were just whooping round the office, weren't we, Rose? Mm. And and that was the beginning of it. And when, interestingly, when it became the huge success, all of those, well, quite a few of those um, um, celebrities and and established writers I'd sent the book to wrote to me afterwards saying. You know, I wish I'd responded at the time. I have read it since, of course. I'm sure you've got too many quotes now to care about mine. And that, that was quite nice as well. And it is a genuine word of mouth success, that book. I actually reviewed The Kite Runner early on. Oh. And uh, and I remember that at the time, you know, it was an amazing novel, but it wasn't yet, yeah. you know, very well known. So yeah. it's amazing to, it's, it's, it's really wonderful to hear the story yeah. uh, behind it. Yeah. Um, and then you moved to Orion and yeah. you published other books. And Rosemary, what is your story in publishing? How did you come into it? And what are you most um, happy about having oh. done? Um, so I came into it as... Um, a graduate 
um, I'd studied French and German and uh, I thought I wanted to be a war correspondent. But mm. I ended up, a friend of a friend called me to say that someone was having a baby and would I, could I type and could I go along to Chateau and Windus? So I did a week long typing course, turned up, pretended that I could type and I became a secretary at Chateau and Windus and very quickly the person I was secretary for was no longer there and I became Carmen Khalil's secretary, mm. which is the connection mm. with Azu at Virago because obviously Carmen had started Virago Press. So I was a secretary, number two secretary, not even number one secretary to Carmen and then um, she was... Uh, a brilliant teacher, but sort of quite demanding. So she offered to train me to be a publicist. So I became a publicist and I became publicity director at Chateau and then moved to Bloomsbury, where Liz Calder, another great mentor, so the two great mentors in my life have been Carmen Khalil, really, and Liz Calder. And Liz gave me the chance to become a commissioning editor around the same time that Azu joined as paperback publisher. And that's when I started to commission and I was doing both fiction and nonfiction. And I suppose I'm sort of proudest of people who at the time were writing first novels that no one had heard of. Mm. But, for example, John McGregor's first novel really? I published, If oh. Nobody Speaks of Remarkable Things, things like that, that at the time seemed, you know, quite small books. But then to in later years to see these people being shortlisted and winning big mm -hmm. prizes was a massive sort of, I suppose, mm. affirmation of my original choice in them. And then at Bloomsbury, I gained, I suppose, a bit of a reputation for buying slightly odd non-fiction books mm -hmm. that had a humorous or a an odd oddity about them. And I think the biggest bestseller of those was one called Shots Miscellany. Ah, I interviewed Ben Schott yes. for this podcast yeah, yeah. last month. Yes, So that sort of took off that was huge in a major way, Bloomsbury. but then other humour. So that was your discovery, really? Yeah. Yes. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I had found that and I remember the sort of desperate, I read it, in fact, I started it. He'd published a limited edition as a mm. Christmas card, which he'd sent out. He was a photographer at the time for something like the Reader's Digest and he'd produced this limited little edition, which was his calling card. And I got it. It was handed to me. In fact, it had come to the MD and he gave it to me and I read it that night in the bath. <laughs> and I remember it was sort of 10 o'clock at night and I was frantically thinking, shall I ring him? Shall I ring him? You know, I just knew. I yeah, just knew yeah. that moment that it was something that could be huge. But This I've... is so exciting. We had Brent Schott here to speak about his first novel, you know, last month. And he did talk about that you know, how his first book happened. But to now hear your story mm -hmm. as the real backstory of how it was published is absolutely wonderful. This is this mm. is really exciting for me to to have this on the podcast, you mm. know, the stories yeah. of connecting. Yeah. And both of you, obviously, what you're saying and what you know is that being an editor is all about having that instinct, mm. that gut feeling, yeah. and you just know in your gut this is it. So when yeah. you said, oh, I would have put my own money on yeah, this yeah. book, that's because you just knew it. You do know it, but you don't... I mean, you know, as you as you sort of progress through your career, you mm. have got that instinctive passion. Mm. But, you know, it, is, it has become quite a corporate industry. So there are so many layers, you know, so many levels of... of um, 
okay you have to get from from various other departments yeah i think it's definitely got harder and harder mm. to just follow that absolute gut instinct Uh, yeah i I think that's difficult so you are now both no longer um where you used to be you are doing different things yeah and uh one thing that you have now done together is written this book so the title as you say is craftfulness and the subtitle importantly, is mend yourself by making things. What is that all about? Mending yourself by making things? Well, when we first started talking about this idea was um, not recently at all. It was actually probably Azu and I started having a conversation about why we made things. Because when we first really got to know each other in our 30s, I guess, during our time at Bloomsbury, we discovered that both of us were um, quite avid crafters. And Mm. I have always knitted a lot. And at the time, Azu was knitting quite a lot. But I then discovered that she had a past history of mosaic making and (laughs) heaven knows what. And we used to go to each other's house for cups of tea or to have dinner and in the past, there were times when actually I was quite badly depressed, clinically depressed and unwell. And I used to, I remember a couple of times going to Azu's house and actually just sitting and knitting and not really being able to talk. I couldn't talk. And then later we were, Azu has since become a, a brilliant book binder and um, mm. Japanese wood block prints, which I'm sure she'll talk about. But <laughs> it was then the discussion of it, why is it that this through our whole career in publishing, when we had these sort of very demanding and creative jobs in one way, but actually where we felt most alive and most creative and most calm was in those periods away from that when we were on our own just quietly knitting or pursuing these other pastimes. And it was through that conversation we realised that it was serving a huge purpose Mm. for us, that the sense that when I wasn't well, actually knitting was really the only thing that I could do. Mm. And it was incredibly important in that period when I really, really wasn't well. Mm. And what is it about knitting or doing something else, um, making something out of something mm-hmm. with your own hands that has that effect on your mind mm-hmm. and your soul, mm-hmm. as you describe it? I mean, we've always done it, you know, from mm. small children, we've discussed the crafts we pursued as, as very young children. So in a way, we don't, we, we can't compare not doing it. So all, all we can I mean, we have a compulsion to do it. So whatever manuscript or books we're buying or publishing, there would always be a time where we would, you know, shove the manuscript aside and we would get on with making. And it it, it fed a part of us, or it certainly fed a part of me, that nothing else could reach in quite the same way. And it sustained me for that work. Um, publishing, editing, writing... All of that is very busy headwork. Mm-hmm. And I, over the years, I've realised that I needed a space that I wasn't thinking very much at all about anything. I was mm-hmm. just concentrating on using my hands to make the thing I wanted to make. So if I'm doing any printmaking, say I'm carving a wood block, yeah, my mind wanders and it goes here and there. But 
it always comes back to the the thing I'm making and the, the pleasure and enjoyment I find in using my hands to make an object, to make a print, to make a book. Um, and it is the thing I, I will turn to. I will do some small thing every day. Every day? Yeah, That's every wonderful. day. Whether it's to uh, continue a project or start a new one, mm -hmm. even if it's for 10 minutes. I mean, we know when, I mean, I certainly know when I haven't, I've been just too busy to do any crafting. Like, every, you know, I haven't had any time at all. And it's a growing Niggle. urge within me that, you know, I, I really do need to do so. I really need to shut it's off. An, an itch. An itch, Rose. There we are. <laughs> and it might be, this, you know, the same with meditation. If, you, if you're a meditator and you haven't done it for a while, you, you can feel something building up. And that, and you just might need to just sit quietly for twenty minutes and repeat your mantra. And I think our mantra is to cut sheets of paper and roses to knit. Yeah. <laughs> it is how we wrote the book. It actually. is yeah. how you wrote the book by. We would just sit talk and talk, these conversations. And, and we'd have something that we didn't quite know how to put it, and then we'd go, "Well, that's good." So sometimes Azu would say a sentence, and I say, "You better write that down." And then. <laughs> Yeah, so we did. With yeah, the yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. We also interviewed some amazing people. So, mm. you know, we know quite a lot of makers. And it was those interviews were very inspiring and they run through the book. Um, and these are people who have very different, you know, normal day jobs, if you like. And they, and they craft because for the same reasons we do. It's just part of the fabric of their lives. And, and that's why they mm. do it. And this book is really beautifully written. And really, Thank really you. well presented. <laughs> it, it's a beautiful book. It's it's kind of crafted. This book. It's both written and crafted. So it's a, it's a, it's. I have to say, since it is December, uh, <laughs> an amazing present to <laughs> Thank give. Thank you very much, um, Rosemary Davidson, Arzutasin, authors of Craftfulness: Mend Yourself by Making Things, published by Quercus. Thank you very much for this conversation for Love Reading. Thank you Thank for having you us. Thank you very much. My personal favorite this month is a perfect book to read in winter, whatever the weather. Snow, a biography by journalist and best-selling author Giles Whittle, will make you fall in love with the very idea of snow, from the science behind the beauty and uniqueness of each snowflake to the history and geography of snowstorms and a look towards the future of our planet. Whittle approaches all these themes with a delightful sense of wonder and fun, telling great stories with the kind of exuberance we all feel when that first snow begins to fall and we just want to play in it. He writes, Snow has a lot in common with religion. It comes from heaven. It changes everything. It creates an alternative reality and brings on irrational behavior in humans. What gives a flake its shape? Why are no two alike? How can the same warm wind bring snow to one side of a mountain and dry air to the other? How can rain sweeping up a valley past your window turn to snow in the blink of an eye? My pleasure in moments like these is not fleeting. It can last for years to be recalled and savored like Proust's Madeleines. This book had the same effect on me. It brought back my own snow-related memories, and I was surprised to find how many of them were linked to key personal experiences. Giles Whittle takes the reader on such an exciting journey, you just can't wait for the next snowfall and feel and explore its magic. And, last but not least, 
I'm grateful to the author for making me rewatch that scene in Wonder Woman where she discovers the magic of snow for the first time. Not surprisingly, it is also the moment she discovers love. Snow, a biography by Giles Whittle, is published by Short Books, and it is my pick for this holiday season. I'm Cressida Connolly, author of the novel After the Party, which I'm going to read from now. This is my central character, Phyllis, talking in 1979. When I came out of prison, my hair was white. I think it was a shock for them all, but for the children especially. I'd had brown hair before, but now it was yellowing white, like the mane of an old wooden rocking horse. They hadn't set eyes on me for such a time. It must have seemed to them that there had been a horrible substitution, like in Little Red Riding Hood, when the wolf is in the lacy bed where the grandmother should have been. Here was this haggish-looking old person instead of their mother. My clothes must have seemed very drab too. And then, of course, prisons smell awful. The lack of fresh air makes everything musty and stale, and the tar-tang of regulation soap sticks to your skin. And, of course, your clothes aren't laundered. Heaven knows what I must have smelled of when they came forward to be embraced. It was the first time they touched me for I don't know how long. They were pretty reluctant about it, shuffling when their aunt prodded them to come towards me. Not that I really blame them. They all thought that it was the awfulness of prison that had made me old, like those old wives' tales where someone sees a ghost and goes white overnight from the shock. But the truth was simply that one couldn't get one's hair dyed. Hair dye was not provided, and why should it have been? It was meant to be a punishment, not a hairdressing salon. Some of the women combed shoe polish into their hair, close to the head around the parting, but since we were only allowed black shoes, there was just the regulation black shoe polish, so that wouldn't have worked for me. My mother had gone grey in her late thirties, and I was the same. I'd been having my hair dyed for some years before prison. Both my sisters knew this perfectly well, but somehow Patricia allowed the children's fright to affect her, so that she began to believe herself that it was something that had happened in an instant. I know that is what she used to tell people, as if it was some sort of fable or story. My sister was sent to jail and her hair turned white. It was one of those things that snowballed until everyone in the family believed it had happened from the upset of it all. But I wasn't upset. I did not mind being imprisoned. Well, that is not really true. I did mind very much, of course, being separated from the children. But the thing was, I thought I deserved it. What I did was terrible, terrible. The shame of it will never leave me until my dying day. Such a stupid, sordid thing, and yet I believed it to have had a terrible consequence. Cressida Connolly, welcome to the Love Reading Podcast. Really happy to have you here as a guest and also personally on a personal level to meet you because I have heard so many things about you. I have read your reviews. I was very grateful for your review of my book so many years ago. And also, your name came up in a very funny, unusual sort of context in my reading. For some reason, I'm not sure why, I became obsessed with Barbara Skelton, whose, whose name kept popping up as a very interesting um, character on the fringes of the London Literary Society, married to a succession of men, one of whom was your father. And... At some point in one of her memoirs, she suddenly writes about this sentence about baby Cressida being mentioned. And also, I think she was sent a picture of you as a baby by your father when he was married to your mother. And I thought, oh, Cressida, baby Cressida, Cressida Connolly. Of course, it's the Cressida Connolly that I think of as the journalist, the writer. And 
I thought this is so interesting because it all her life seemed so long ago. But here was this connection. And then this memoir, or perhaps another memoir, because she, she wrote several, continued. And then there was this really, really moving passage about Cressida being the one, the only one who looked after her in her last years, that she was so very lonely at the end of that very busy social life, socially rich life. She was suddenly on her own, and there was only Cressida looking after her. And this all sort of came to mind because your novel, After the Party, is set in 1938 and, and in the 40s, so late 30s, 1940s. The excerpt you read from the beginning is from the part um, when Phyllis, your main character, has just left the Holloway prison after so many years in there. But the bulk of the novel takes place during those years, and those were also the years that I read about in Barbara Skelton's memoirs. So I was wondering, how did your your parents or your step-parents or that whole sort of generation influence you? I think they influenced me a lot principally, perhaps, in the way they spoke. I mean, my father was born in 1904, which seems kind of unimaginable now. It's such a very long time ago. And in fact, weirdly, he met Edith Wharton, who um, I was reading the other day, which is sort of seems impossible. And so in my book, there's a lot of dialogue. I've always liked to use dialogue to move things along. And I wanted to get period dialogue right of the 1930s without it sounding like something out of Brief Encounter. You know, you always have to be wary of parody when you write period dialogue. And so I think I did draw upon people like Barbara, friends of my dad's, but also she was married to him. She was sort of, in a way, my wicked stepmother, although I was very fond of her. But she was a difficult woman. And the fact that she was very lonely at the end of her life, I think, was because she had been somebody who concentrated so much on being a girlfriend and a wife and perhaps not didn't pay enough attention to friendship. So I think that did leave her quite out in the cold in a way. But yes, broadly, that's why I was drawn to that period in a way, is because I those voices are very vivid in my head, the way they spoke. And nevertheless, I'm sure you, you must have done a lot of actual research, historical research. Yes. Because your novel is a fictitious story about a woman called Phyllis and her sisters and what happens in their lives. But actually, you are relating this to real historical events, to the rise of the British Fascist Party and Oswald Mosley as a, as a real character in your novel. How did you combine that research with what you knew about the period? Well, it's always interesting about how much research you do because it's easy to get over-reliant on research. And when you're interested in a subject, no detail is too small. You know, if you discover that they wore blue socks, you're really excited for two days. So I had to balance it up. And I'm not a politician. I'm not actually even a historian. So how it happened was that a book called Black Shirts on Sea came into my possession, which is a small sort of semi-privately printed book book. It's a record of the summer camps that were run by Sir Oswald Mosley's followers down on the south coast in England. And it's got all these photographs of people sitting around campfires on hay bales. It all looks very wholesome and as if it could be a girl guide camp or something of that kind. But then there are photographs of Sir Oswald Mosley himself coming to visit. And suddenly there are all these people doing the fascist salute, kind of on the shingle near Littlehampton. And it's just down the coast from where Butlins opened their first camp. And it seemed to me an extraordinary 
very little known part of British sort of social and political history. Um, also, it struck me that Mosley had at one point forty percent of his followers were women, which was more than any other political party. He appealed very particularly to women. I think partly because he was making a promise that there wouldn't be a, a, a second world war in Europe, and many of the women of the time had lost fathers, uncles, brothers, even husbands in the First World War, and were very very anxious for there not to be another major. European war and Mosley, one of Mosley's things was that he was an appeaser and wanted there to be peace. So I think that's how women came to get so involved in it. Also, he offered sort of quite a lot of power to women within within his party. You know, they could become district leaders and they could write in magazines and things. They were quite they were quite a, a substantial voice within within British Union. But really, I made up the story of the three sisters. That's more kind of archetypal stuff from fairy tales and betrayal and mm. exile and and so on. So it was bringing these two things together, these two strands of the three sisters and how they would all do wrong by each other with this strange little moment in British history. So your novel begins with Phyllis, the younger sister, returning to England in 1938 after several years of living abroad in Argentina and then Belgium. And now she and her husband and their three children have come back and she's staying with one of her older sisters. It's it's It sounds like a very grand sort of house and their social circles also sound quite posh and grand. And at first it seems it reads like just a sort of description of the most mundane issues one has to deal with, such as food, children, weather, you know, very social situations, friendships. And there is not a mention of the political context at all. However, what we do know is that one of the two sisters, not the one Phyllis is staying with, but another one who is described as the only one who's kind of funny and has a sense of humor, apparently, that sister is involved in the actual running of this camp and is very active in what you describe or or name only as the union. And is, she's very excited about these speakers who come down from London. What I was very intrigued by was how the social life is so interconnected with the political opportunities. So these men have connections of their own women do something else entirely. For some of these women, it is all about prestige and having those dinner parties and important guests and a sense of being involved in something fun and interesting and meeting other women, perhaps, who are equally interesting. But to the men, I mean, the men know more about the actual movement. Phyllis is the youngest, and she has always been the sort of neglected one, the modest one, the shy one, the humble one. She didn't feel that she really measured up to her older sisters. Here she finds herself trying to just find something to do, really. She has nothing to do. The children are about to go off to boarding school and she has nothing to do in her life, actually. And nobody t nobody's interested in what she does or in anything she says. She doesn't really sort of have a voice, I don't exactly, think. Exactly, exactly. But gradually she finds her way into this movement. Now, this book has just been published as a paperback. 
And so we have so many reviews to, to read about it from your hardback publication. And many of them use the word subtle to praise how it is written. And I have to underline, I completely agree with that. This book is so subtly put together that you don't even notice what is going on and how huge it is. And the only sign you give early on of the dark things to come, of the actual real story, is the story of the pig. Can you talk to me about that scene? Well, it's a story, funnily enough, a friend told me that she had been to look round a stately home somewhere in the West Country mm. of England, still a house that's in private hands, and that they'd been shown round by a butler who still worked in this house, and that he'd shaken his head when she left and said, oh, and she'd said, thank you so much as they were leaving, and he'd said, oh, you're missing this house, I wish you could have seen it back in its glory days. The young master took a pig up onto the parapet and chucked it off, as if that was you know, the absolute apogee of the glory of, of Englishness. And this story had always stuck in my mind. And so I included it, a version of it. I make the people uh, at a, a sort of drunken party go and get a pig and throw it off. And I did it on purpose to show how sort of ruthless they are. And of course, it prefigures the sort of unpleasantness of what's to come. But it's to sort of show... I think one of the things that happens to Phyllis in the book, of course, she becomes political. She becomes attracted to a populist right-wing movement, but also she becomes coarsened by her involvement with those people and by that movement. And to me, that's a story that the throwing the pig off the parapet is horrible and very, very cruel, but it's also very coarse. It's a kind of very coarse action, these horrible drunk men doing this, you know. And so, it, and finding it funny, and finding it funny, it's meant to be a kind of portent of mm. the horrors to come. And I tried to make, you know, I'm glad in a way that people keep saying this word subtle because I tried to make it that it's very softly, softly because I think that's what happens with populist right wing mm. movements, which are now, as we know, in the ascendant all over the place, is that people don't notice. You know, they keep putting one foot in front of another, and something that seems like quite in my book, there's discussion about preserving small shops in the high street. That's how it begins. Perfectly reasonable. Then there's discussion about roads, building a big road all the way around London with spokes going off it like the spokes of a wheel to the cities, which we now know as the M25. That was originally proposed by British Union as they became, they were originally the British Union of fascists, but that was outlawed, so they had to then refer to themselves as British Union. So these were quite reasonable schemes, and I deliberately used those things so that the reader would feel quite lulled almost because I wanted the reader to feel as Phyllis feels that it's that there isn't anything very harmful. There isn't anything really very nasty and how easy it is to get sucked into a movement of that kind as so many people are now being throughout the Western world as far as I can see. When her daughter Julia paints an anti-Semitic sign on a building, Phyllis is upset about the vandalism and the hooliganism of the gesture, but not about its content, really. Well, she says, doesn't she, um, uh, 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 she can't understand why Julia would have anything against Jews. She doesn't think she's probably ever met a Jew except possibly a piano teacher when they were living in Belgium. So she's utterly unaware of yeah. what that means. And she isn't really very shocked by it because she isn't from the East End or anything. They, these are people on the South Coast. You know, they have no idea what 
they're getting into with this. I found it very distasteful having to write anything anti-Semitic at all in the book. And in fact, I got stuck before I wrote that scene. I got stuck and I couldn't write for weeks because I found it so awful to have to write it. But I was in touch with people who had been Mosley supporters for part of my research. I'd made plain Mm -hmm. to them that I did not share their political views from the beginning. However, they were very helpful to me. And I said, can I get away with how little anti-Semitism can I get away with putting in this book? And somebody said that Sir Oswald Mosley himself had limited his speakers to 10 minutes per one hour of speech. Now, from that, I don't know whether we gathered that people wanted to go on for much longer or whether they had other business that they considered to be more pressing. I'm not, I I mean, I'm unable to say, but he said, you absolutely will have to include it. You can't leave it out. It was very much part of their, I mean, I knew it was, but I didn't want to make it so explicit as I, in the end, had to make it. So, Phyllis, as you say, gradually begins to identify with this movement. But what is she actually guilty of? What puts her in prison? Well, she was in fact, this is a real episode in British history, which occurred in May 1940. Churchill and various other people became very concerned that Mosley and his followers might form a fifth column. And so they introduced something called Defence Regulation 18B, which meant they were allowed to round up a lot of people without trial. And infiltrate, I assume. Uh, And infiltrate, although apparently they always knew who the infiltrators were because they were let out almost immediately and they had nicer (laughs) rations and things. Anyway, I don't know. So what they say is that the infiltrators were very amateur that may not be the case. But it is the case that lots of people, including Mosley himself and his wife, Diana Mosley, were rounded up and imprisoned in those months from May till about July of 1940. And at the same time, uh, the Enemy Aliens Act was introduced. So many people who'd been refugees who'd come over from Germany and Austria and so on, who'd been living perfectly normal civilian lives all over the United Kingdom, found themselves rounded up and many thousands of them were imprisoned on the Isle of Man, as were my characters. And there was this extraordinary thing. When I went to the Isle of Man to research uh, for the book, I'd imagined that there'd be camps, you know, with long camp buildings and so on, like Boy Scout huts, perhaps. But they weren't. They just requisitioned entire seaside towns. They requisitioned all the boarding houses and then just put barbed wire around the outside of these towns. And the one where the women prisoners were kept, Port Erin, did indeed have German and Austrian prisoners. Some very few Nazi Germans were there, but mostly Jewish prisoners. And then some Italians, many fewer. And then some of the people who had been followers of Mosley all cooped up together in this in this village. And it seemed such an extraordinary little episode, you know. Is she rejected by her family and her children? As a result of all this? She is. Yes, she is. And I thought of that. I went, I'd been to see Shakespeare's play Richard II. Obviously, I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare. But I'd been to see that play. And I was very, very struck by how at the beginning, when the king has the two people in front of him who have been accused of plotting to dethrone him, he decides to send them into exile. And to them, exile is the most terrible, terrible punishment to be sent away from England and not to be able to speak English. It says something about the teeth and the lips being like a portcullis that guards their tongue so they can't speak to people that they love. And it seemed to me that exile is a very kind of under-recognised form of punishment and of sorrow. And of course, the refugees who are living in England are in exile from their homeland. So Phyllis isn't exiled from her country, but she's exiled from everybody she loves. And that is, again, meant to be a kind of hold up a mirror to the real experience of people who were undergoing true exile in those same years, you know. It's um, impossible to read your book 
without thinking that it is a reflection in a very artful way, but a reflection of our own times, the times we are living in right now. So many of those scenes, descriptions, slogans, the stuff that gets under people's skins that makes them vote this way or that way or see reality in a distorted manner are things that we are dealing with and are bombarded with today. And this England that you describe in your novel, to me, reads very much like Brexit England. It just is so eerie. It is, isn't it? It's a very odd thing. And actually, quite a few writers, Well, although oddly enough, I will just interject that Thoroswell Mosley himself was pro-Europe, mm. but, but in a rather sinister way because he oh. believed in the colonial thing and he wanted to keep the empire together and so on. However... I think that it's odd how writers respond to anxiety, to a general sense of anxiety. And several writers, I've just reviewed Kate Atkinson's new book, Transcription, and that touches on the fascists of the 30s. There's a writer, Juliet West, a novelist, who's also written about the summer camps, actually. She's written about it. Anthony Quinn, DJ Taylor's written a novel on this subject. L various novelists have sort of, oh, and where the, Melissa Harrison mm -hmm. has also. So the, quite a few books have come out that look at this period, and I think they are are responding, the other writers, I mean, I can't speak for them, but they are responding to a sense of anxiety about this sort of, it's a kind of willed nostalgia. It's very misleading. And Mosley himself did used to refer to Merry England, spelt, you know, M-E-R-R-I-E, -R -R mm. as if it was a place where Robin Hood might emerge at any moment. Mm. You know, I think that kind of playing on nostalgia, which we see in current Brexiteers, the idea that Britain is going to go back to some fantasy version of itself in the 1950s, which of course is impossible and undesirable. Um, it, it's very interesting how nostalgia is a, is, a, is a very good net with which to catch people. Do you think fiction can help us make sense of both history and the present and, and help us think about how we can maybe, what we can expect really from the future if we follow this path or a different path? I hope I hope so. I mean, I couldn't. couldn't I, that's not why you wrote it. No, it? it isn't why I wrote it. I wrote no. it to write a story, but I hope so. And I think that telling stories is always a way of examining things and always a way of finding our way through the maze of life. So yes, yeah. Cressida Connolly, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. And your book After the Party is published in paperback by Penguin. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our selection of winter-perfect, thought-provoking and deeply satisfying books Skin Deep by Liz Nugent, Craftfulness by renowned editors Rosemary Davidson and Arzu Tassin, and After the Party by Cressida Connolly. We would like to thank these authors for joining us here. Thank you also to Lucy Scholes for her book post about Cassandra Dark, the new graphic novel by Posey Simmons. Please go to our blog at www.lovereading.co.uk to find out more about the titles, authors and themes on this podcast and to discover many others. We will return in February with a special podcast featuring the winner of the Love Reading Very Short Story Award. The shortlist will be announced on 14th January. Please follow these announcements on our website and social media. This podcast was produced by Alex Raymond with original music by Alex Raymond. I'm Elena Lapin, and on behalf of the Love Reading team, I would like to wish all our listeners 
happy holidays, and lots of joy in reading. Thank you for listening.